If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, we began a, a few weeks ago, we're, we're working up to Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, where we're going to kind of spend this slow amount of time working through this part of Resurrection. So last week we talked specifically around um, the table, and I encourage you and challenge all of you through this series as we're working through these, this last bit of Jesus' uh, last few days in life, that you, would just, you wouldn't just come to this, this, the history, the story, the narrative, and just listen to it with the same ears you've always listened to it. But instead, I challenged you to, to consider looking at, looking at these characters that are in here and the individuals that are in there. Everything is, is central, especially with Matthew's writing. He's, he's showing the Messiah King. Everything is centralized on the character of Jesus Christ and who he is. But you have all of these other individuals that play a part in what God's will is at the end of his life. You have, you have good parts and, and, and unhealthy parts, and you have, you have followers that then betray, and you, you have all kinds of different aspects. And my challenge was that you would read this story. As we've been working through it, I've, I've asked that you guys would read each account each week. I hope you've done it. We've we shared it on our Facebook, but this week would be back at Matthew again, and so you'd work through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so that by the time we get to Resurrection Sunday, you'll have read the, the last few days of Jesus' life it, twice in each gospel. And I just can't help but think that it would affect you. In fact, um... If you don't have a Bible, slip your hands up. I think we already asked for that. But this is one of those scriptures where I came to it this week. And, and every now and then, and you guys may think this is normal, but every now and then I can tend to get a little emotional. I blame it on the three daughters I have. But, um, but this is one of those texts that I don't know what it was, but there were probably about three different times this week where as I was studying, I had to just stop because I was, I was, I was weeping. And, and, and I, don't know, I don't know what specifically was happening. I don't necessarily there. I have an idea of, the text, but when I start looking at, at who Jesus Christ is and, and who he was and what he had to do for me, I, I, I got overwhelmed by his love. And so my, my hope and challenge is that I don't get in the way of that and my emotions don't get in the way of that, but that you would, you would allow um, yourself to maybe go back to the setting of what it must have felt like for the disciples. See, we, we just come off this almost kind of euphoric, beautiful situation where Jesus has declared that he ultimately is going to be the Passover lamb, that he will be slaughtered, he will be killed, his blood has to be spilt. And it was very clear to the disciples at that moment, even though they still didn't understand or couldn't come to, come to reconcile the idea of him suffering as a Messiah. But he has this, they have this beautiful situation where he does the most amazing and, and ridiculous, humbling situation ever where he gets down on, on his hands and knees and he takes the, the form of a slave and, and washes the feet of the disciples, even the one who betrays him. And he goes through this beautiful, beautiful thing and, and it comes and it picks up in verse 30 and, and Matthew um, does a great job of kind of just turning the corner so we don't necessarily know where it's at, but verse 30 it picks up and says, and when they had sung a hymn, and this hymn was most likely, I, I want you guys to write this down if you have it or, or, or figure out how to memorize it, put it in your phone, Psalm 115 through Psalm 118. Most likely that was the Psalms that they would have, they would have either prayed through or sang together. So I would encourage you to go back and, and look at those. And so they, 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 they sing this hymn together. It's the beautiful end of the evening. It's, it's getting late at this point, and we'll get there in a second on the time, but it's, it's late in the evening. And so they sing this hymn, and oh, it's just such a great moment. We get from the Gospel of John before this hymn is sung. We get from the Gospel of John this this, this meat of what his kingdom looks like. Chapters 13 through 17, I would encourage you to go read those as well. Just kind of this, this, what does it really mean to be a part of God's kingdom, the way that Jesus is setting it up through the new covenant? 
And so this kind of beautiful situation happens, but then we come to this, this contrast that is you can't help but notice. And there are so many things in this little chunk of Scripture that I would love to spend hours upon hours on, but we're going to have to just kind of gloss over a couple because I don't want to miss the main point. But there's so many things, and one of the big things that's happening is in this is the contrast. The contrast from, from, the, from the meal that they shared together, the Last Supper, and then the contrast to the very next moment, they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if, if you go to Israel, the Garden of Gethsemane, the, the, the olive trees that were planted all over, they would have been to the eastern gate of the temple. So if you were at the Temple Mount, you went out, looked out the eastern gate, you'd see between that the Kidron Valley, which was probably about a 400-foot drop in Jesus' day that kind of wove its way through. And then on the other side was the Mount of Olives. And so there was all these olive tree gardens. And olive tree gardens would work better lower altitudes, so they would probably be lower down in there. And there's a traditional site, and you can go there, and you can stand. When you're looking at it today, you're, you're standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you look up. You're kind of looking up to the eastern gate. But most likely, because of demolishing and rebuilding and demolishing and rebuilding, most likely in Jesus' day, the, the valley was deeper, and the garden would have been almost eye level with the Temple Mount. So you're sitting kind of in that. So you have to kind of picture this idea of this garden standing. You can see the Temple Mount across this 400-foot drop valley. So if anyone was leaving the eastern gate and headed over to the Mount of Olives, that's the way they would go is the eastern gate. That was the traveled gate. That was the one that most people traveled to get into the city of Jerusalem. But they would have to kind of weave their way down the hillside through the Kidron Valley and then back up to the Mount of Olives. So picture it being really dark at night. They don't have Walmart, Supermart, like lighting up stuff right there, right? There's no, no street lamps going on. And so you, you, you picture it being really dark. If you were standing in there and if you had any wits about you and were just looking at the Temple Mount, you'd maybe see some glow, some fires and stuff. But you could see people wink, making their way down the valley. They would disappear and then they'd come back up and you wouldn't see them and then all of a sudden they'd pop up again and you would see them. And so that's where Jesus is going. And this garden we know from the Gospel of John most likely um, is a garden of a friend of Jesus's. They spent a lot of time there. It's a garden that was common to him. It's, it's, it's why Judas could easily know where they were going because right? he would spend a lot of time there. So they spend this time together. They have this hymn. They have this beautiful thought, and they start making the trek to the Garden of Gethsemane. And this garden, at this point, you know, 10, 10, 15, 10 o'clock, it's, it's late, okay, 10 p.m. And so they're working their way there. Then Jesus, just out of nowhere, says to them, I mean, it feels like, it kind of feels like a, the wrong sentence at the wrong time, but Jesus knows what he's doing. He says to them very clearly, he says, then he said to them, you all will fall away, or that, that word trip, you will all trip up, you will stumble, you will stumble away. And he's, the reason why is, 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 is ridiculous, because of me. And then he says, this night. You're all gonna, you're gonna stumble tonight. Tonight, because of me, I never really thought of it this way, but I always assumed that the reason why the disciples failed and ran and it was because they were afraid for their own life, which maybe there was some of that, but Jesus is telling us more. He's saying that they're going to stumble because they still don't understand why the Messiah has to suffer. They don't get that, and so because they don't get that, they flee. They run, right? So they, and then he goes in and says, uh, quotes kind of loosely Ezekiel 13, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he's, he's talking about the resurrection. So he's speaking as plainly to him. Hey, this night, the shepherd is going to be struck. You guys are going to leave, but I'll go ahead to you in Galilee, and I'll see you in Galilee. Then Peter, and Peter gets a bad rap, and I get it. You know, he's, like we all have a friend like Peter. Maybe it's your spouse, right? It's the person where like, where they're, like they say something, and you don't know whether you're going to have to apologize for them. Or like, be like, man, that was really solid. Thank you. Like, but they're just kind of that, like, they walk that line so fine, right? Where you're like, yeah, no, oh, okay, good job, buddy. High five. And then 
And it's like, oh, Peter, I'm, I'm sorry. That's just Peter, you got to know, right? So this is Peter. I like to add a little bit of my own conjecture to this section here and picture this, this sitting, okay? Jesus just tells them. Now, they can't think of a time, and if they tried, where Jesus said something and he was wrong. In fact, everything he said has happened at this point. So, so Jesus says, hey, just so you guys know, tonight you're all going to fall away because of me. Q and Peter. And I picture them walking, right? And Jesus kind of says this, hey, by the way, just so you guys know, and they're kind of walking like that, kind of says it this way. Again, this is my reading of it, right? It may not have happened at all. And I feel like Peter <laughs> stops and says, wait, what? Come on, Lord. I mean, come on. Come on. And then he, he does. I love it, right? He says this. He says, Peter answered, Though they all may fall away. Like, you know, I could see Matthew. I mean, the guy was a tax collector. Give us a break. I mean, like, that guy's gone, right? Though they may all fall away. Come on, Lord, come on. Come on. Like, I'm your favorite. Come on. There's no way I'm going to fall away, right? So he just kind of says what he was thinking. Probably no one else was, right? <laughs> and, and, and then Jesus says to him, I, I can't help but think that these probably were one of the most identifying sentences and statements to Peter's life that we get in the Apostle Peter as he writes and all those other things. I can't, can't help but think that this right here was that pivotal moment in his life where he doesn't really hear it at this moment. He doesn't really understand it, but this would have haunted me if I were Peter just a few hours later, right? Jesus says to him, truly, he's calling attention. It's like they're walking. Okay, stop. Hold on, Peter. Come here, buddy. Come on. Sit down. Truly, truly. I tell you, this very night, this very night, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. For us, rooster crows, is interesting. The Roman timetable, they, they, they call it the cock crow hour. Between 1 and 3 a.m., the, the roosters would start crowing around that time. And so that was what they understood as the, as the hour of the cock crow, right? The, the, this, is where they're, this is when it happens. So, so picture it. Peter's... <laughs> Peter's walking, we'll call it 10 p.m., 9.30, whatever. We don't know exactly, right? And Jesus says, hey, just in a couple hours, you're going to deny me three times. Three times you're going to deny me. Now, I love Peter for his declarative statements and his strength and his putting his fist down and like, no way. But he goes on and just argues with the Messiah, which never works out well for us, just so you guys know. Peter says to him, even if I must die with you, even, even if I must die with you. So he's acknowledging that Jesus might die. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the disciples said the same thing. So and this is a, a side topic. We're just going to talk about it real quick and then we're going to move in. But our declaration of how certain we are to follow God does not mean anything when it comes to the actual temptation and following through with it. I, I wrote it this way in my notes. I said, I said, if we're to follow Jesus, then we got to be more faithful to prayer in our lives. We'll get there in a second. And secondly, truly understanding God's will in prayer, to truly understand God's will in prayer, we have to, do more, we have to be more willing to surrender to it in spite of the circumstances and desires. Meaning that it is one thing for you and I to say, I believe that Jesus is God and I believe that he's Lord and, and we're following him. But when the, when the rubber meets the road, when the temptations come, when the difficulty arises, we either run or we stay. We either dig in or we run. And Peter at this moment is making that declarative statement like, no way, if I must die, if I must die. You know what we know of Peter's life? He does die for Jesus' sake. It's just later on. This night, he does exactly what the Lord unfortunately predicted he would. 
denies him. And so there's this interesting conversation as they're walking in the garden, and I can't help but think it would sit a little bit in my heart if I was following Jesus with him. And so they walk to the garden. They get to, the, they get to this specific garden that they've been to many times before. And Jesus went, in, went with them to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And so he's, he tells the majority of his disciples, hey, sit here, stay here while I go over here and pray. So he's very specific. I'm going to go pray. I'm going to go spend some time praying. We, we see Jesus do this often in his ministry. We see him re- remove himself from the, from the disciples and others to spend time in prayer. But he does something very unique here. He then looks at the three closest disciples, Peter, John, and James. He says, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Now, this is such a poor translation to what Jesus is feeling right here. Very sorrowful, like, oh, he, he's sad. Okay, Jesus is very sad. Like, the, the words, we don't have a great translation, but it's, it's like violently sad. If you've ever seen someone experience the, the most horrific of horrific things, the death of a child or, or the, the most horrible of betrayal, and you see this, like, you cannot in any way see them act anything else, but they wear this grief. Whether it's, it's, it's shaking and screaming or, or tears or they're just, they look like they're lifeless because there's so much sorrow, Jesus is displaying that kind of violent sorrow. Now, if you look at Jesus' life and you think about Peter, James, and John who have been closest to him and spent a lot of time with him, experienced most things with him, one of the things I always had a mentor tell me is when Jesus displays emotion, pay attention. Pay attention because he's usually doing something very specific. This is, if... My bet, this is the, the only time that Peter, James, and John ever experienced Jesus like this. They've seen Jesus angry. They've seen him even weep twice. We saw him weep over Lazarus' death, which wasn't really Lazarus being dead because he was raising him from the dead, but probably the, 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 the fact that sin had worked its way to death and experienced that. We see him weep over Jerusalem as he's entering in just, a, just the week before. But here we see him violently sorrowful. In fact, it probably looked like to them fear. Probably the best emotion that they could have attributed to this was fear. Now, if you think about Jesus, he has been, like, he's shown emotions, but he's always shown truth in light of those. So his anger was, was anger without sin. I don't even know how to do that, right? His, his, his tears were still tears through showing that the God is God. But he says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling so much sorrow, even to the point of death. I feel like for... Peter, James, and John, that might have changed their mood a little bit. What's causing Jesus to feel so much sorrow? We'll get there in just a second. And then, going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, you know, he says, my father, two things are important to know. This is the only spot in all the New Testament that we get Jesus prostrating himself. I'm certain he did it at other times when he was praying, but this is the one spot that it says that Jesus got down on his knees and face, hands, and got down in the most humblest of humblest spots before his king, God. He prostrated himself. And then in that posture, in the posture of, I see, this was so common to, to, to people in their day with kings, you wouldn't look at them, you had to be down, that you understood that whoever you were prostrating yourself for was so far above you that you weren't worthy to stand at the same level as them. Jesus assumes that position, and then he utters, my father. And to us, that's, okay, we pray, Father, we sing about him being a good father, we understand that. 
But that is such a provocative term. That's what got him in so much trouble. You realize that's the ultimate thing that they used to crucify him. See, he's saying he's the son of God. He's not, there's no great translation. Some people say it's like daddy. It's, it's not really like daddy. It's still a form of, of immense respect, but it is an intimate calling of God. Super, super intimate. Only one that you can understand if you've experienced that kind of intimacy. And this is nothing to do with where we're going, but some of you, you can't really call God your father because you don't experience the intimacy. But you're meant to, to be able to identify yourself as his child through Jesus Christ. So if there's a disconnect in father and God, it might be because of your, your own depictions of who you've seen as a father and earthly father or maybe as your own self as a father, but, but that's the intimacy we're supposed to have with God. That's, that's the way that we're supposed to be able to communicate with God. And Jesus, in the most humblest of forms, on the ground, on his face before him, says, my father. In fact, it's the only time he prays that way, too. So we have this unique thing where Jesus is, is praying in a very specific and different way. And if we don't pay attention, we, we miss it. So it's my father. And this is where it's interesting. If it is possible. If it is possible. If it can, if, if there's any way, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. If there's any way, take, take what this cup means and let it just pass. Don't, don't, don't make me drink this. Don't, don't have me drink this. If there's any way. But nevertheless, nevertheless, he says, not as I will, but as you will. And then he walks back to to Peter and James and John, and Peter and James and John are asleep. Now, okay, we give them a bad rap for that, right? Like, it, remember, it's probably close to midnight, so they're tired. They got a full belly, right? They did a nice long hike. They've heard some pretty intense things. Now, I heard it said this way by a, a pastor and speaker, and he mentioned this, and you can maybe gain this from the Gospel of Mark because it talks about they were sleeping from sorrow. If you've ever experienced sadness or depression, what's the one thing you want to do all the time? sleep. When you're really, really sad, all you want to do is sleep. Now, we don't know if that's why the disciples are sleeping, but I can tell you right now, they had never seen Jesus as shaken up as he was. They had never seen Jesus as sad as he was, where he's saying, uh, to the point of death, maybe, maybe they just couldn't take it, and that's why they fell asleep. Maybe they were tired, and they fell asleep. Maybe they just were lazy and they fell asleep. But either way, they were asleep. And Jesus says to them, so we, we don't know what else happened in that prayer, but Jesus came to his disciples and found them sleeping. He said, said to Peter, <laughs> Peter, not to James and John. Let them off the hook, right? So you could not watch with me one hour. So assuming Jesus spent this time, it's been an hour praying or so. You, could, you couldn't do it for one hour? You couldn't just stay up for one hour. And he goes on says, watch, and now he adds, and pray. Watch and, and pray. Don't just watch, but now I'm calling you to pray. And then why is he calling you to pray? Lest you be tempted to. He says, go on. He says, what, what are they talking about? We're just tired. What do you mean pray, lest you be tempted? And Peter says, or he says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says those words that I think we all love to quote. <laughs> but I don't think it's necessarily the way it's meant to be. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
It's great to have a willing spirit. It's great to desire these things to make those declarative statements, but the flesh is so weak. And so what do you need to do if your flesh is weak? You pray. Jesus is giving us a map for prayer. And again, I would love to spend a lot of time talking about this. We'll probably have to do it another time, but there's something that I believe is more important in this text. But, But Jesus is showing us as our Messiah how we are to pray. What does he do? It's three different times. And some scholars believe that this is a time where the enemy, um, Satan, is in pushing and tempting and tempting Jesus again at this moment, tempting him in this. And so he's having to endure this. Jesus recognizes in his full humanity as fully God, he recognizes his weakness and dependence on God. Do you see that? He, He understands that he cannot take this temptation without getting down and spending time in prayer. And then he says the same words to his disciples. Now you pray or you're going to get tempted too. Pray. And Jesus, he starts the prayer with something that all of us start our prayers with. God, help me find someone to marry. Help me get an A on this test. God, give me this relationship restored. Or God, would you bring about financial freedom? Or would you, and we pray for all the things that we desire. We all do that, right? We have those desires but we just forget the second half most of the time. Maybe we'll think it, no, 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 you know, but your will, God. But, but really, if you don't do this, I'm probably going to doubt who you are. And I'm going to question following you. Let's be honest, that's, that's more of where our prayers are. More of our prayers, God, do this. I desire this. Do you realize how deeply Jesus desired for this cup to pass from him? The Gospel of Luke tells us that the capillaries in his brain or in his forehead were open and blood was coming out with his sweat. I'm pretty sure he actually wanted it to pass from him. It wasn't some like, hey, I'm just going to ask this so people can know how holy I am. And then I'm going to say, the will of the Father, go ahead. No, he's, he desires this. So do you. You desire to be married. You desire to have friends. You desire to belong. You desire to be free from this sin. You desire those things. But it's not just the desire that's needed. The flesh is weak. We have to be more on our face before our Lord in prayer like our, our, our Messiah was, Jesus. Jesus says, nevertheless, your will. Now what's unique is he comes back confronts the disciples, says, unless you fall into temptation too, please, like, come on, people. Stay awake. Pray with me. Which is really, again, this is an extra thing. It's a unique thing because Jesus is experiencing a human temptation as Jesus, right? Again, he's still fully God, but fully man. He he has stepped down from the throne room of God to take on this flesh. He experienced all of it it without sin. I kind of feel like he, he understands who he's going to gain the strength from, right? He's going to gain his strength by prayer, to God, but I kind of feel like he's also calling on his brothers, the closest people he knows, to pray with him. He's, he's invited them in, hey, pray with me. Pray with me, and they couldn't do it. They slept. And then what's unique about prayer, Jesus goes again, again for a second time, he went away and prayed. And this time, my father, same, same term again, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And what it is, is it's a unique spot where I feel like most of us in our prayer life never get to. I struggle with this all the time. God, your will be done, your will be done. Oh, wow. This is your will. Okay, I'm in. Your will be done. It's not what I wanted. It's not what I was hoping for. But your God, your will be done. And very few of us can utter those words and actually believe it. Very few of us get to a spot in our prayer life where we're like, oh, 
wow, I was kind of hoping for that, you know, 2.5 kids white picket fence American dream, but you're, you're doing something totally different here. I don't know, God, are, are you real? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm real. My, my will would be done, remember? And that's what Jesus shows us. He, he models this for us. He says, look, you can have these desires, but know that, that ultimately my will will be done. God's will be done. Jesus submitted himself to the Lord's will all the way to the cross. Well, none of us have had to submit ourselves to anything as excruciating as that. So we get a model for prayer. My, my challenge, and again, we got to go to the, we got to move on, but my challenge is, is that if we want to follow Jesus, if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, then we've got to understand more what it means to actually pray like he did. Maybe, I'll change that. Maybe we just need to start praying. Right? I don't know. I mean, what does Jesus say for an hour? I don't know. But when you have the intimacy with the Father, I'm pretty sure it's not a boring conversation. We ought to be more prayerful. We have to be more willing to submit ourselves to his will. You know, one of the most unique things is Jesus defines the will of the Father through prayer. It's through the prayer that he understands this is your will. It was set before time with him. He knew what was going to happen. He came to earth knowing specifically what had to happen. In his moment, he's like, God, please help me if it's possible. And then he ends it. His, his tune changes. It's not possible. Okay, then your will be done. And we see Jesus from that moment on march confidently into the most excruciating circumstances ever. So he says, in there, we, he comes back again. They were sleeping again. Um, and he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. <laughs> so, so, so leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep, take your rest later on. Okay, fine, you want to sleep, but don't worry, you're going to have to do it later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayers at hand. Now, if they had stayed awake, they would have seen the betrayers coming. You realize there was no way for them to miss those torches working their way down that hillside. They would have seen it, but they couldn't stay awake. Now, what I want to talk about is not prayer, but the most, the largest thing that I think comes out of this text is why is Jesus showing so much emotions? Have you ever stopped to ask that? Like, so many of us go to, well, we saw the passion of Christ, and it looked pretty bad, right? He got whipped a lot, and, and it's true. He got whipped, and he got beaten, and crowned thorns, and spit on. And just thinking, just thinking right now, just thinking about that is pretty painful. Can you imagine being Jesus? When, and I knit that person together in their womb, and they're now mocking and spitting on me. I was a part of their creation, and now they're whipping me with the hands that I created. What took it even one step further for me was the amount of abandonment he felt. See, what Jesus' pain is, it's not, it's not the, it's not the, I don't, he's not showing the emotions of the cross. I'm sure he wasn't like, I can't wait to get whipped. I'm not, I'm not, like, I'm not saying that he was doing that. But he knew that that was a process. What he's in pain for has nothing to do with the way he's going to die. It has everything to do with the cup that he has to drink. Do you realize he doesn't say, God, if it's possible, can you just have him whip me 37 times instead of 39? God, if it's possible, can you make the crowns a little, like, like blunt on the one side so it's not as painful? Like, he doesn't, he doesn't ask for any of the, the torture to come. Okay, I understand crucifixion, and it's, it's excruciating and painful and horrible, and can you maybe just have me die before the cross? He doesn't ask for any of that. He says, no, no. He says very specifically, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, what is this cup he's talking about? It's so unique. We see him pick up the cup and begin the new covenant, 
which symbolized the cup of redemption at the Passover meal. Right? The last cup which they never drank of was the cup of protection, which is unique, right? Lots of scholars love to get geek out on that, but that's another sermon, right? There's this fifth cup that shows up. And this cup is where I believe most of us have a block in our brain as to whether or not God is loving. You've, you've answered this question before. Like, how could a loving God be, be judging and, and full of wrath? Like, we hear about this, this wrathful God and this, this, this judgment that God shows in the Old Testament. How, how is that loving? Well, do you realize in this text right here, those collide? We understand just how loving God is through this. Because the cup that Jesus has to drink isn't anything, isn't like some, oh, I'm going to drink a glass of wine here or whatever. It's nothing to do with that. It's a picture of drinking of this sin that you and I have done. So picture it this way. All of us are carrying around a cup. And in this cup is every sinful thing I've done, going to do, and am doing. And I deserve to drink this cup. Like I have not done anything to earn but just drink this cup. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any right to say, well, I'll just drink it later. No, no, I deserve every bit of this. And you know what this cup is filled with? It's filled with God's hatred, anger, and wrath and divine judgment for the sin that I'm doing. It's full of that. And we don't like that. We're like, God loves people. How can he be full of wrath? Well, hang on. We see it really quickly. Jesus was praying to not have to drink that cup. Now, I, we have no context to understand this, but think about it this way. I heard a pastor once say it this way. We each have our own little cup of our sin to drink, and we deserve to drink that. But on the cross, Jesus takes a 10,000-mile-wide dam and a 10,000-mile-high, and in an instant, it's broken, and he has to drink every single drop of every single sin that every single one of us has done. And in an instant, Jesus now, who is perfect, had never felt the guilt or the shame that comes with sin, had never felt the pain or the abandonment. In an instant, Jesus is experiencing all of it. That's the cup he doesn't want to drink. He willingly steps into it and does it, submits to the Father's will. Thankfully, he does it. But that's the cup he's drinking. He's drinking a cup full of abandonment. I, I couldn't help but think of this. All of us, no matter how many people dislike us, <laughs> we all have someone we can still fall back on. Have you ever thought about that? In an instant, okay, well, yeah, I really made these people mad, but at least I still have this person. Or I still have this person. In an instant, Jesus has no one. Even for his time, he's without God, who promises in First John that he will never forsake those who are in Christ Jesus. In an instant, Jesus experiences the complete pain, turmoil, and hurt of sin. And he walks into it willingly for you and me. Why is God loving? Because God gave the wrath and the judgment to his perfect son so that you and I could experience that love in relationship. So that we could get down on our hands and knees before God and pray, my father, in intimacy. This wrecked me this week. He didn't deserve that. I did. You did. He doesn't deserve to have his closest followers bail on him. To experience the abandonment that sin causes between God and us. He doesn't deserve that. And he walks into it. 
but don't assume it was easy. And that's where we get it wrong. We, we skip over the emotions that Jesus is showing when he realizes the, 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 the reality of what he is about to do. What he is going to take. Something that you and I rightfully should drink over and over and over again is no longer ours to drink in Christ Jesus. Amen. Praise God. When you come to face that, it wrecks you. And this is why I've challenged you this year to be more authentic. Because the truth is, there's so many of us in here that are making that declarative statement, if I must die, Jesus, I will. Well, you know, just, just not this week. I got a lot of things going on. Well, you know what? We really like each other. And yeah, maybe this isn't the way relationships are supposed to go. But you know what? Your, your, grace, your grace is good. And we make light the very thing that Jesus felt immense pain for. The very people he's giving all for wouldn't even stand with him. You realize that? He's giving everything for these people. The disciples are right there, and they wouldn't even be able to stand with him. They couldn't even stand with him. And similarly, we do the same. Why would God do that? Well, a verse that's overquoted and lost its stamina in our life. It's my daughter's favorite verse right now. That's what she tells me. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only, son, only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Why? Because he loves. That's why God is wrathful and vengeful, so that he can love. I want the God that, that does all of that to show his love for me than the God that says, eh, you know, sin, whatever. Oh, I love you, though. When you understand what God has gone through and done to set up this new covenant and the blood and, and everything that happens in that painful moment, you can't help but go, oh, man, he really does love me in spite of everything that I did that filled that cup to the brim and overflowing over and over and over again, he really loves me because he gave his son that cup. He gave his perfect, sinless, wonderful, beautiful son that cup. So his son had to endure abandonment, pain, guilt, shame, everything that comes from sin. In an instance, he made him who knew no sin, sin. No greater love than this for someone than this lays their life down to the other first John. Right? We don't do anything to gain this. That's what I think we struggle with. But one of the unique things in this text I think we figure out is that specifically, if we are to live in light of that, to live in obedience to that, we have got to be more prayerful. We have got to be more prayerful. We've got to rely on them. If you think about it this way, Jesus, who knew no sin, was perfect in every way. He didn't try and take on this painful temptation moment going, well, you know, I am God, so I got this covered. No, he got down on his face before the Lord and said, help. Help me, God. And the only way he could stand up confidently and walk that lonely, lonely, empty road was because he had the strength of God in him. So why would we assume that we don't need God to do what we're called? I want to kick that addiction. Well, stop doing it in your flesh. I want to be more faithful. Great. Let the Holy Spirit lead you in that. Stop trying to do it on your own. You were not meant to do it on your own. In fact, Ephesians 2 tells us that we didn't do anything to gain this. Jesus took everything for us so that we could have everything. 
He, he took all the pain so that we didn't have to have pain. In fact, you know what's interesting? If you were a follower of Jesus, if you submitted your life to Jesus, you know what you can't have and shouldn't have anymore? Fear. Realize Jesus took fear on the cross. The only fear that we're called to have as followers of Jesus is a reverential fear of God and his glory. So if you are succumbed by fear, you're doing it on your own strength. You're not surrendered to Christ. You know what else is interesting? Jesus took loneliness so that we never have to feel that anymore. No matter how many people abandon you, you know who will never forsake you and leave you if you're in Christ? Your Heavenly Father, the one that knows you better than any other person around you. So you can say, I don't have to be lonely anymore. I don't have to feel fear anymore. God has defeated that. And when Jesus went to that cross and drank that cup, Praise God that he didn't stay dead, right? Three days later, he walked out of that tomb, and with that, he defeated death. And now we have nothing to fear in Christ. So maybe it's time we are more prayerful. Maybe it's time we believe that prayer does more than we just think some flippant words going back and forth. The band's going to come up, and we're going to worship. In just a second, we're going to do baptisms. And I was a little worried about doing baptism on a Sunday like this because I was like, well, it's kind of a downer of a day to do baptism. But I couldn't think of a more beautiful time to say, I'm with you, Christ. I couldn't think of a more beautiful way to show the value of following Jesus, saying, I'm, I'm in. Dunk me. Let me show my union with Christ. Let me proclaim what he has done in me. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. My, my challenge to you, and this happens every time we do baptisms, there is always someone out there <laughs> that's probably getting a little sweaty palms right now and a little calm because you realize that you're supposed to be baptized. You know it's an obedience thing, and you continually, willfully run from it. My challenge to you, whether you're afraid of your hair looking wet or you're afraid of doing it in front of people, you just don't know what to say and you're just, you're just scared, whatever that fear is, you're not called to live in that fear. God is free from that fear. And so if you, if, you are, if you are someone that's like, man, I know I'm supposed to get baptized and I keep running from it because I keep excusing it away and keep excusing it away, I'll be in the back, you can come talk to me. But after a couple songs of worship, we already have one baptism we're doing and then if anyone else feels like God's calling them to be baptized, we'll do the same. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, my Father, you've done so much to love me. God, forgive me and others for making light of what it means to be able to call you Father. You are so good to us, God. And I can't imagine what it was like to see Jesus experiencing that, that sorrow and that, that pain but God, I do know one thing, that that didn't last. I do know that he, he dropped to his hands and his face and he got down before you and he said, Dad, help. Your will be done. And God, may we be a people that don't just pretend to say that. God, may we be a people that truly are marked by your will. I think of those that are leaving for the Philippines or those that are getting baptized today. It's just another step of saying, your will be done. Not my comfort, not my desire, your desires, God. I pray for that unique spot that the psalmist says that when we incline our hearts to your word, that you will give us the desire of your heart. God, I pray that that would be our heart. I pray that our, I pray that our desires would be your desires. I pray that our will be your will. And I pray, God, that you would get much glory for it. Knowing what you went through and did for your children is, is amazing. It's beautiful. It's incredible. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the 
ability and the strength to follow through that, not just in declarative statements where if I must die, I will, but God, that you actually see it when the temptation comes. You see us in a more intimate setting, communing with you, communicating with you, dependent on you. God, you've made some of us so strong. I pray that you would just bring about immense weakness so that we could experience your strength only. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.